If you haven't found Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles, I want to invite you to do so. And we are today going to look at a day in the life of Jesus. The section that we're going to look at captures a day in his ministry. And uh, we're going to be surprised, I think, at the amount of things that Jesus did in this one day. I don't know if you've ever wondered at times of maybe how some of your heroes spend their day. Maybe it's an athlete or you think about a movie star or someone you, are, you, you look up to and you think, I wonder what their daily ritual, their daily routine is. And maybe you've thought that about Jesus. I wonder what his normal ministry days look like. Well, we're going to get a little glimpse into that today. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to just bite off these verses in little sections as we go along. Beginning at verse 14, it tells us, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We learn that there was, this was a turning point, a pivotal, pivotal moment in, in the ministry of, of Jesus' day. John had been arrested, and Jesus came to Galilee. Now, you know that the Gospels don't include everything that Jesus did and said. Some of them include things that others did not. And Mark has left out uh, a, a large section, almost a year of Jesus' ministry. You can read John 2 through 4 if you want to find out what he's been doing in the meantime since the time of his temptation until now. He went down and spent uh, the majority of that time in Judea and in Jerusalem and in that area, the, the scene where he overturns the, the, the um, money changers' tables in the temple uh, his miracle at the wedding in Cana, uh, those sorts of things have already ta- taken place. And now he's back up in the north, back in the, in the region of Galilee. And this is the region that he will be in for about the first half of Mark's gospel. The first eight chapters he spends in and around the Sea of Galilee ministering in that region. And he says here in verse 14, uh, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Jesus came at the right God-appointed time. This was the moment. This was history climaxing, building up, ready for the revealing of the Messiah. He says that time is fulfilled, and this is his message. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' ministry is summarized in these verses right here. The kingdom of God is is God's rule over people's hearts and life. And Jesus is saying, this is now being established. And you need to repent. And we said last week, that's a turning from our sins and turning towards God. He says, repent and believe the gospel, the good news concerning me. And that was going to become more evident as Jesus, of course, ministered, but then eventually died and rose again. And we understand the fullness of the gospel. And Jesus said, believe this message. Repentance back then and in our culture today is not a popular message. But it was part and parcel of the message of John the Baptist, of Jesus, of Paul, and the other apostles. They never presented salvation like this. If, 
If you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, all you have to do is ask Him in your heart. That language is not found in the Bible, and, it, and we need to be careful about having it in our vocabulary too. The message of the Gospel is one of repentance and faith in Christ. We need to make sure as we preach and proclaim the message of Jesus that the language that we use is clear and articulate. Well, if you have your uh, notes and you want to fill in some blanks today, we just have a a real basic outline. It kind of divided up Jesus' day into three categories. And the first one is the, the disciples. The disciples. In verses 14 through 20, we read about him calling several of the disciples. It tells us this. I'm sorry, verse 16. Let's start at verse 16. Passing along this, alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who was Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is a scene where Jesus is calling several of his disciples. And he goes and he finds some fishermen. Guys who were hard at work. Out there making their living by hauling in the fish. The Sea of Galilee brought a thriving fishing industry to all of the 16 bustling ports that surrounded it. The Sea of Galilee is a large lake, 7 miles wide, 13 miles long. Sometimes we think of these fishermen as as poor men, just barely scraping by. In reality, they, they, they probably had a little bit of wealth. These men... Um, were involved in an industry that was a very lucrative business in their region. Furthermore, we see that uh, when John and, and James walked away, it says they left not only their father, but a boat with hired servants. And so obviously they were doing well enough that they were able to hire other men to join them and join their crew as part of their, their fishing team. And so things were, this was not a, this was not a, we can't picture them as some guys just trying to eat by and desperately trying to find something to do with their lives and oh, they feel like a better deal came along so they followed Jesus. That wasn't the case at all. They were doing quite well. And Jesus came along and call, called them. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The translation really should read, I will make you become fishers of men. Because we all know that this is not an overnight process. Not too many of us. Now, this happens sometimes. A person comes to faith in Christ and immediately they're on fire to share the gospel. Winning souls for Christ. They, they can't be quiet. They'll, they'll tell anybody and everyone. But for most of us, this is a process. He's, I will make you become fishers of men. The discipleship process and the learning in, in the growing in trust and faith to be able to step out and share our faith with others is a process. Jesus' call to follow him was completely different than any other teacher or rabbi. This was not common, a common way to recruit disciples. It was usually, it usually worked the other way. 
Rabbis did not recruit students, but students would apply to study under them, much like applying to college today. The more illustrious the rabbi, the more rigorous the acceptance process. No prophet before Jesus had said, follow me. They all said, follow God. All the prophets building up to Jesus pointed to God, but now Jesus can come along because he's God. He says, follow me. Listen to me. Listen to my words. Listen to my teachings. Completely different than any other teacher or prophet that had ever walked the earth. It tells us in verse 18, it says, They immediately left their nets and followed him. Remember we said that one of Mark's favorite words in the gospel is the word immediately. And he uses it here to describe their response. They didn't weigh the pros and cons. They didn't go visit their financial planner to see if this was doable. They didn't step back and, and, and get all kinds of advice about what they were supposed to do. Jesus said follow and they just followed. They left everything. They were willing to drop it all and follow him. Wow. Leaving everything behind so that they could embrace the Savior. Some commentators I read this week speculate as to why the men so quickly left everything behind. There's some indication that they'd already heard about or maybe even met Jesus. Perhaps they were so captivated by this mysterious teacher that they quickly jumped on the bandwagon. They, they, They chose to follow him. But either way you look at it, it was a sacrifice. They were dropping everything that they knew, everything that made them comfortable, everything that had defined their existence and, and, and their life up until now. And they were willing to walk away to follow Jesus. I wonder if we have that same eagerness, that same willingness to cut ties with what holds us to the world. Tim Keller writes this. He says, uh, he quotes Luke 14, 26, which says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Keller says, why does Jesus talk about hating? In a number of other places, Jesus says you're not even allowed to hate your enemies. So what is he saying regarding one's father and mother? See, Jesus is not calling us to hate actively. He's calling us to hate comparatively. He says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly, that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. If you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if, if, is your real master and your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If he calls you to follow him, he must be the goal. Jesus must be treasured above all else. And in comparison to these other things, it must look like like we hate the rest of what we have in life so that we may be devoted fully to God. 
Another writer said, not only must the fishermen leave their nets behind, but they must also leave their own families. There's nothing inherently wrong with nets and less so with families. Nets are essential to fishing and families to life. But even these things must be abandoned if they become encumbrances that prevent one from heeding the call to venture into discipleship with Jesus. I wonder what God's calling you to leave behind today. I wonder if there's other masters, other idols that are precious, too precious, and you haven't cut ties with them. And they've holded you back from being able to serve God, to love Him with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. Jesus is calling us to discipleship. Not only do we encounter the disciples in this day in the life of Jesus, but we also encounter the demons. A real change of pace. As we come to verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Capernaum was a small city by the Sea of Galilee. It figures prominently into Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, most scholars believe that it was kind of his home base. He was from Nazareth, but once he left there to do ministry, Capernaum was a place that he returned too often as he ministered in and around that region of Galilee. It says he goes into the synagogue and begins teaching. The synagogue was an important fixture in the first century religious life and and really civil life of the Jewish person. The synagogue is different than the temple. There were many synagogues, but there was only one temple, right? It was in Jerusalem. But synagogues arose several, uh, they don't really know when exactly, but several, uh, um, probably a couple hundred years before Jesus came onto the scene. And so by the time that he arrived, it was a regular part of, of their worship. And it originally arose because uh, many of the men and women couldn't get down to Jerusalem to worship. And so uh, synagogues became, became a place of local worship, really a local church, um, where they would meet together. Um, they, it, was, it was very, very, uh, there were a great deal of them in, that, in, in all of Israel. In fact, uh, one writer says that in the time of uh, Jesus, uh, Jerusalem may have had three to four hundred synagogues itself. Um, the word literally means a meeting place. And it was not just a place of worship on the Sabbath, but it was used as a religious school during the week. Other assemblies would meet there, and even trials would be held in synagogues. Each synagogue was ruled by a chief officer, although he did very little of the, the teaching on the Sabbath. The services and the reading of Scripture can, could be conducted by any male who was deemed competent. And so this is where we find Jesus on the Sabbath. I just want to say uh, uh, just a quick note about the importance of getting together on, you know, the Sabbath would have been Saturday. We, uh, since the time of Christ, Christians have traditionally met on Sunday. It's so important to gather. Uh, Notice that even God himself felt the need to be among believers on the Sabbath. Even God himself. He didn't need to learn anything. He knew knew the scriptures. He was the one that wrote them. He wasn't wasn't battling with, with sin in his life. He was perfect. And yet he still felt the need to be with believers when they gathered together. It's so important to our spiritual growth. And so he begins to teach. And verse 22 says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. 
and not as the scribes. Other religious leaders came and would read the Scriptures and, and they would try to explain what they meant to the people. And you, just like, just like with pastors, you had some that were duds and you had some that did a good job. But they recognized that this one that they were hearing today was far and away different than any they had ever heard. And it says the reason why is he was speaking as one with authority. Did you ever give a, a message to your kids? Maybe it was to do a chore. And maybe you sent one of the other children upstairs to let them know. Hey, Dad said you have to take out the trash. I've discovered in, in the history of my parenting that that works on occasion, but oftentimes they'll blow off the sibling. I forget you. But if mom or dad walks up there and says, you need to take out the trash right now, all of a sudden, if there is wisdom in this child's heart, <laughs> they respond a bit differently. Before, it was just brother or sister bearing the word, but now... The word comes with authority. And the people sitting in the synagogue that day, they heard one speaking with authority. And they marveled. A scribe could only say, the scriptures say thus and thus. But Jesus comes and says, I say unto you. And you can read, read those very words in the sermon on the mount, as Jesus is preaching, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and all of a sudden their ears begin to perk up because they're hearing something they had never heard before. God is explaining the very words he wrote, and their hearts are being shaken. And then something interesting happens. Verse 23 says, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How many of you know that when God's word is proclaimed, God's enemies don't appreciate it very much? They, they don't want to hear and there was in their midst a man who was demon-possessed. Kind of makes you wonder about the, the nature of their gathering there. If, if this demon-possessed man could come in, presumably week after week, and not be affected, not be changed, and nobody seemed to notice. The deadness of their, their practice seems to be deafening. And, and, and However, when Jesus spoke, this demon cried out through this man. He recognized who Jesus was. The term Jesus of Nazareth, if you look at it in Scripture, in the Gospels, it's usually, not always, but usually a term of, of derision. You remember when Nathaniel was called in, uh, in the Gospel of John 1, or I think one, chapter 1 or chapter 2, and he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was kind of a despised place, and often when Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth, it's usually being used in a kind of a condescending Term, and I think that's the way the demon's using it here. If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. 
And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus spoke to this demon, and immediately the demon left. The demon had to obey the authoritative command of Jesus Christ to leave and go. There'll be other instances of this, but I just want to say a quick word about demon possession. It's kind of a topic that that can draw our fascination and interest. Jesus' day was very unique with regards to demon possession. If you read the Gospels, you would think that this was an everyday occurrence, that everywhere you went, there's someone demon-possessed nearby. But the Scriptures don't bear out that it's quite so common as it was in Jesus' day. Only one instance in the Old Testament can we see uh, someone being, a demon being cast out. David cast out a demon. Otherwise, demons don't seem to be possessing individuals like they were in Jesus' day. And then when you get past the Gospels and you read the book of Acts, uh, there's very little in the way of demon possession. I'm not saying it can't take place today, but I'm saying that in the time of Jesus, Satan knew something was going on. He knew God was coming into the world, and he was just going like mad trying to stop it. And one of the things that he did to try to cut Jesus' ministry short and to reduce the effectiveness of his ministry was increase the demonic activity. I, uh, personally speaking, I can only think of one time in, in my life and ministry where I, I saw someone where I truly felt that they may be possessed by a demon. I was in uh, high school at the time and went on a mission trip and was in Central America. And we went to a, a Panamanian prison. And I just remember this one guy I saw through the bars. I've just never seen evil like I saw that day in his eyes. And it was just, just this glare uh, that he had as, as our group was walking by. And I could almost, I could almost hear these, these words that are, that are written in this passage. What have you to do with us? Just, just get out of here and go on your way. And um, I think that it seems like as I, as I read missionary accounts and works overseas, demon possession is, it seems to be far more common in countries where animistic beliefs uh, captivate um, individuals and in, in their supernatural spiritual activities, places where, where Satan's strongholds remain steadfast. And here in our country, it seems like Satan is much more uh, satisfied and effective with using materialism or relativism to distract us from the gospel and, and from God's work. And it doesn't seem like quite as often he resorts to demon possession But it is a real thing, and it does happen. And it's important to recognize that Jesus is the one who has authority over all spiritual forces and all spiritual powers, and we see that authority being exercised in this passage. As believers, we need not fear Satan. We need to remember that that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But we need not fear, because the Scripture tells us the one who is within us is greater than he that's in the world. But then finally, in this, as this day comes to a close, and Jesus is leaving the synagogue 
We see thirdly the diseases. The disciples, the demons, and finally the diseases. One in particular, as Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 29 says, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. Now I just want to tell you something that I found, I read this week, I found extremely interesting. I don't know if this is something that piques your curiosity, but if it does, go check it out. Archaeologists have discovered a synagogue in Capernaum. And uh, it's, it's been dated back to the time of Christ. And they, they believe with relative certainty that it's this synagogue that we see turn up in this passage. Now, if you notice, it says immediately he went from there to, to Simon Peter's house. Well, across the street from this synagogue, they have discovered the remains of a first century home that has early Christian symbols uh, etched in some of the walls and some of the, the surfaces. And many scholars believe that this home is Simon Peter's home because of the proximity of the synagogue and the Christian symbols and knowing that Jesus would have, would have probably stayed there when he stayed in Capernaum. They think that they're, they're fairly certain that, that they can locate the synagogue and the home that turn up in this story. It's, it's kind of neat. You can go visit them today. Uh, in fact, if you want to hop on a plane after the service. Um, and so uh, Jesus went into this home, he found a woman who was sick with a fever. I, I know we all, don't always think about this, but Peter was married. This is his mother-in-law. First uh, Corinthians 9, 5, if you want to look it up, it mentions that Peter uh, had a wife. We really don't know anything about her. If, we don't know if she passed away. Uh, we did, nothing else really turns up in his writings or in, when you see him ministering. But, uh, but uh, I'll lay all the mother-in-law jokes aside. Jesus felt like it was important enough uh, to go in and, and come alongside this woman and heal her. And it says in verse 31, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Just like that, Jesus made her well. Uh, he didn't need any special potions, magic powers. The healing was immediate and total because that's the power of God at work. So much today that passes. We, we, we believe that God heals today. There's no doubt about that. God's power is at work through prayer. But so much of what passes for healing services on television today are a bit of a joke. See, when Jesus healed the lame, they didn't walk with a limp afterwards. When Jesus restored the sight to the blind, they didn't need corrective lenses later. Does Jesus heal today? Of course he does. He does so through prayers of faith. We do not have the authority of Jesus and the apostles to, to automatically declare someone well and them to jump up out of bed. But he does answer prayer and he can do miracles. And just like that, he can make people well just as he did in those days. And Jesus has power over diseases. As we read this story, you'll notice that in this day that Jesus spent, as he called the disciples, as he healed, as he cast out demons, as he taught in the temple, people's responses were different. I want you to notice in verse 22, it says, they were astonished at his teaching. In verse 27, it says, they were all amazed 
They saw these things. They took in everything that was taking place around them, and, and they couldn't believe it. They were left scratching their heads. And maybe some of us are in this boat this morning. We read the account of Jesus' life. We hear the stories of what he did. We, we read about his teaching. And maybe we're moved. Maybe we're even astonished. Maybe we're taken aback and we think, that's amazing. But being astonished and being amazed never saved anyone. See, many of these people that were astonished would just in a couple of years be shouting, crucify him. It's a great start to be moved inwardly by the ministry of Jesus. This demon was declaring that he was God even, the Holy One of God. That's still not enough. Jesus calls us to go beyond amazement, beyond curiosity, beyond astonishment, and to turn to him and believe his message. Verse 15 says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus in faith, believing that his death and resurrection is sufficient to pay for your sins. My prayer today is that as you read about the disciples, as you read about these demons, and as you read about the diseases, you are astonished and amazed, but that you you move beyond that and become a disciple yourself. Let's pray. Father, we know that as Jesus ministered, he caused quite a stir. Everywhere he went, he left people who were, who were just dumbfounded, unable to believe that, that the lame were walking and the blind were seeing, that the dead were being raised. They would hear the teaching and, and it, would, it would confound them. Never had anyone spoke like this before. God, I pray today that our hearts are stirred, but it wouldn't just stay there. That we would be willing to to leave everything behind to follow you. That compared to the the things of this world, uh, that that we we would hate them in comparison to our love for you. That they would they would be, as as Paul said in, in Philippians 3, counted as rubbish, as filth in comparison to the surpassing glory of knowing you. God, I pray that no one today would be able to leave this church without turning to Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.